and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can find me, Austin Glidden, on uh, Letterboxd, on Twitter, and uh, Instagram. Uh, all of them, just Austin Glidden. At Austin Glidden, you can find me uh, everywhere. I would love to chat with you. Also, wherever you're listening to this, whether you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is, Google Podcasts, any of those places, please give us a like, uh, subscribe to us, follow, give us a rating, review. Any of those things help us progress and grow. We really appreciate it. Thank you for putting up with the shameless self-promotion. So uh, today, I just want to have a really quick intro because this episode is going to be long enough, though not nearly as long as I expected, because I have my oldest friend on today. My oldest friend, we've been friends for 20-some years, uh, his name's Riley Martin. This is the guy, I've told you guys my story, the story of me uh, watching Amelie and falling asleep on my now wife's lap whenever we were dating the first time before we broke up and then spent 14 years apart and got back together. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a long story, but the point is, uh, I've told it before and, uh, Amelie is the reason I got into film and guess who showed me Amelie? Riley. So, uh, yeah, he told me about Amelie. He let me see Reservoir Dogs, Memento, Donnie Darko, uh, Requiem for a Dream, all these movies that at the time were really pivotal for me. So, um, yeah, I just want to jump into it. I'm going to be having a pretty lengthy conversation with him about some of the movies that really influenced him and kind of changed his views on film early on. So all of these movies are going to be movies that as he was growing up and getting into movies, these are the ones that really kind of affected him. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into it. Let's go see what Riley's up to, and I will talk to you guys in my outro. Let's go see Riley. Hey, everybody. We are here today with uh, my oldest friend. Riley, I don't know if you know this, but you're my oldest friend that I still hang around. Do you know this? Yes, this is very true. Yeah, uh, we met when we were 12 years old. Uh, coincidentally, this is not how we met, but coincidentally, our fathers <laughs> used to work together. So once they realized that uh, they had parental connections, we started hanging out a lot more. This guy, Riley, I'm talking about, uh, is the guy that introduced me to RPGs, which is really fantastic. When we were 12, you brought over Chrono Trigger, and we played that. I have vivid memories of playing that when I was a kid. And then, um, And those are like my favorite games ever now. So thank you for that. But this is also the guy that, uh, as my listeners know, uh, you are the one that introduced me to Amelie after a whole series of events with my now wife, but then girlfriend. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm sure you remember this very vividly too, Riley, but you tried to show us Amelie and I was like, I ain't watching these subtitles. And I just went to sleep like a dick. Yes, that definitely happened. So, yeah. So, um, basically, uh, yeah, but it, it was that movie that got me into everything. And then, honestly, dude, you were just like, watch the French New Wave. Watch this thing. Watch Kurosawa. Watch blah, blah, blah. And you just, like, told me all these things. And a lot of the movies we're going to talk about today, actually, coincidentally, these were kind of pivotal movies for you, but they were also very pivotal for me. And not everyone, but most of these were either introduced to me or you motivated me to prioritize them. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching these. So, uh, 
Riley, I'm going to hop into it. Are you ready, dude? Yeah, sure. Let's go. All right. So uh, Riley and I were talking about a few movies. Uh, we have 10 here. I guarantee we're not getting through these because if Riley and I can do anything, we can talk. Um, but there is a movie that uh, you introduced me to. I had never watched anime before, not proper. Like, of course, I'd seen stuff on TV, um, but I was, we were probably, we were definitely teenagers when you showed this to me. I was probably 15 or 16. And uh, sure. it's uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's uh, Akira from 1988. And why did you put this down as a, a movie that kind of just, I don't want to say changed your life, but kind of just kind of changed your viewer like connected with you in such a way i guess i mean i saw it when i was eight years old so that's probably part of it it's not really a film you should probably show an eight-year-old um but it was really cool to see it at that point um and was very i mean the film was very groundbreaking and kind of still is in a lot of ways at least technically um so you know it impressed me as a child but it's still very impressive as a you know, as an animated feature length film in general to this day. So uh, that hasn't really changed over the years. Um, I guess the amount of money and staff and like work that went into that film is just kind of not commonplace. You know, it wasn't then and it definitely isn't now. Um, so it's just, um, it's just a very unique film, I guess. Like a lot of films on this list that I picked out. Yeah. It kind of stands alone, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, it's not particularly a, a great film because it's kind of a mess, but I kind of like that about it at the same time. It's overly ambitious, you know, I very, would say. Very much sure. so. Dude, I rewatched this, though. You you remember this, I'm sure, because we talked about it, I think. I, I ended up just buying the Blu-ray. I don't remember. Yeah. I, I might. I either had the Blu-ray or the like the 4K Blu-ray combo. I can't remember. But the point is, I watched this movie recently, like, well, during the pandemic at some point. So in the last year. And, um, dude, this is a, like a five-star movie for me. This movie blew my mind. I mean, I'd seen it with you years ago, but just re-watching, I'm like, dude, I've seen so many anime movies since then. And this one is still probably, it might be still my favorite one out there. Like, I love it yeah. so much. Just for everybody listening, if you haven't seen Akira, this came out in 1988. It's by Katsuhiro uh, Otomo, and it was released July 16th, 1988, with a budget of $5.5 million. And dude, it, the box office was forty nine mil. That's crazy! What a that, hit! Um, yeah, I don't even know what to make of that. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> I know it's pretty crazy. Definitely a success. If you're interested in watching Akira, you can check it out on Hulu. If you have a subscription to that, it's on there. Uh, but Riley, what uh, you know? Have you watched this recently at all? Um, I've seen it so many times that I feel like I have a lot of it just kind of memorized. So, but there's, I guess I've only seen it in certain ways though, that aren't maybe most people's, uh, experiences. Like I tend to watch the old, uh, streamline dub. That was the very first one they did. And a lot of people hate that because it's the oldest dub they did. It's the most dated. It's like very of the time. Um, it's not really going for accuracy as much as just trying to get like a, an American audience kind of um into the film or just be accessible to them kind of like being closer to american cartoons but also not trying to be like a i don't know like a kids cartoon or something but i mean it doesn't help that you have like the what is it like cam clark that i think to the voice of donatello 
is Kaneda <laughs> in that version. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. There's this like weird mix of like the you know kind of the main characters being this like biker gang that talk like surfers meet New Yorkers. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, uh, <laughs> but it kind of does, I guess, in this weird like post-apocalyptic setting. Like, why not? Um, but it is pretty silly. Um, but it kind of goes along with the film and like how like all over the place it is. I kind of like think it's a good fit, but it's just like the first version I saw. So it's hard to like, you know, watch it. I don't even remember if I've seen it in the, with the Japanese subtitle in the subtitles. I think I've watched it at least once that way. Um, I never watched any of the later, I think there was at least one other English dub. Um, but it's, it's like, you know, it was the VHS version yeah. that for many years was only available on VHS. Uh, so a lot of people didn't watch it that long ago or they'd have no reason to seek out the VHS once that format was kind of like not, you know, popular anymore. Um, so, but, you know, now you can watch it on the newer, like Blu-rays have that as a bonus kind of audio track because they got the licensing, I guess. But um, it is very much a different film, I would say, than watching any of the other versions. Like yeah. more different than the new English dub is from what I've seen, at least compared to like the Japanese. It's at least a closer um, so it's kind of its own thing, I feel like. Yeah, I you know I watched the the one I watched recently. They do have the old audio, which is great. Right, right. Because uh, I'm with you. That's the first one I saw, and you and I used to watch this like super late at night, and we would just laugh so hard when like the the general or whoever it is, like the colonel right, guy, right. would just like scream about shit. It was just like super yes. funny. And dude, there's like an art to this, man. Like there is an art to mm. English dubs, and it's like the only time that I'll watch something that is in a different language, uh, but that I will watch mm. dubbed because I can't stand watching live action movies. And quite frankly, I can't stand watching most animated movies in English if they are meant to be and they are formed around uh, another language. But there's something about anime where it's like, I'll watch it with the Japanese like language with the English subtitles, but there's something about anime that I just love that characteristic of the English dub. And it, and, and it really is like an art, man. Like, you know, trying to match, like, the mouth movements, but also try to convey the story the best you can and all of these things. And uh, the new Akira is super good. It's almost like the new uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion on the Netflix stuff. Like, their new right. dub is awesome. But the old one is notoriously bad, but it's, like, kind of funny, you know? But, like, right. um, but the new one is incredible. And I think the Akira one is that way as well, but I'm so glad. It's kind of like you and I always bitch about, which we're going to talk about Star Wars in a minute, but we always bitch about how Lucas mm. just fucked up everything and we can't watch the originals anymore. And sure. I'm so glad that didn't happen with Akira, you know, where we don't right. get to hear that old audio again, but they actually put it out there so you can make a choice almost like a silent film with music. Maybe they found the score and they score it with the old music, but they'll put like a new soundtrack with it and you have the option, you know? Um, I just, right. I, I, I really love that. So um, the last thing I want to talk about, because I was going to talk about the music, or not the music, sorry, the audio track. Um, but the other note that I had yeah. was just uh, the, the extent to wit, like the, uh, the amount of images and art created mm -hmm. for this is insane like all of the, the, the go ahead i was gonna say just like the matte paintings alone for the backgrounds are yeah. like really really impressive there's just so much attention to detail there's a lot of like 
gosh, I don't fully understand a lot of the techniques, but I know there's a lot of like multi layers where there's like, there's kind of like multi layer, like multiple layers of cells where you have like different background layers that are like scrolling and you, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and like, they even do really interesting stuff with like reflections, like pre CG. That's like very difficult to do where you yeah. have like light reflecting off of a, like a moving object onto, onto like the surroundings. Um, and that's kind of like pretty nuts to see well, uh, some of that. Yeah. Th- think of, th- think of it this way. Uh, I'm going to read something here that I found before this, uh, before we started recording the movie consists. this is like a trivia thing. The movie consists of 2,212 shots and 160,000 single pictures, two to three times more than the usual using 327 different colors. Another record in animation film, 50 of which were exclusively created for the film. The reason for this statistic is that most of the movie takes place at night um, a setting that is traditionally avoided by animators because of the increased color requirements. So just that alone, think about this, guys. This was 1988. How many years ago was that? Hold on. 22, 12, 22, 92. So 34 years ago. <laughs> I had to do some math real quick. 34 Gosh, years yeah. ago. And this probably still has some kind of record in terms of like hand-drawn right. shit. Not like... Not animation done in a computer, which I love, but it's just a very different love. Like, it's a different thing. Um, but this is just impressive. I, 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 And, dude, I'm so glad you showed me. This is the first animated movie I'd ever seen with boobs in it. <laughs> I'm sorry that that's sure, like that a talking sense, point. Yeah. But you have to understand, growing up in the church and shit, you don't really get to see that stuff. So thanks, Riley. But anyway, it's like... Um, I perverted your mind, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's part of the Jesus guilt, I guess. But anyways, so uh but dude, the end. Um and and I'm I'm not I'm not I don't want we can talk about these movies. I'm not trying to like deliberately spoil anything and this doesn't, I don't think. But there's a sure, point where okay. there is a cre- I'll just say it this way. If you haven't seen this, shame on you. Go watch it here. I mean, this is just a masterpiece. But um at the end there is a creature that is blowing mm. up and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you right. literally just watch someone get squished. And when I say that, I, I don't mean like 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 squished. You know what I mean? I mean like they just turned to blood. Like and it was like right. the like the yeah. most disturbing thing I'd ever seen. Like it, I remember is, my stomach yeah. like kind of turned when you showed me this movie at that scene because I'd never seen anything depicted in that way. You know? Um right. it's so great, dude. Any last thoughts on Akira? Um I was just going to point out that now that you mention it, I guess probably most or a good portion of the films on my list uh, probably leave me feeling bad in some way, or at least certain scenes do. Um, there, there's a lot of <laughs> iconic moments in this uh, selection that I guess are kind of uh, leave some feelings of unease or, you know, and I think that's why they're so interesting to me is there's like an emotional uh effect they had on me and and a lot of them still do not just initially so i thought that was kind of an interesting thing to point out even though it's like a ridiculous kind of scene you're specifically talking about as far as how graphic it is and like uh you know um unrealistic uh it's still like i don't know it, it's still pretty weird to watch it you know? it conveys a, affecting it as, yeah it, it conveys something albeit in an unrealistic way very effectively though like you still right. get the effect regardless of, of the realism. Uh, dude, it, it's so great. Again, if you're interested in watching it, check it out on Hulu. I, I can't recommend this enough. This is 
you know, I went back through a bunch of anime movies. Uh, I, I also watched Cowboy Bebop begin last year, but uh, taking that out and stuff, um, watching all the movies that I did, rewatching stuff like Vampire Hunter D and getting into a lot of new stuff. This is just like by far my favorite so far. So I can't wait to watch and rewatch more anime and see if I can mm -hmm. beat this one because I still need to rewatch Ghost in the Shell and some of those classics. So I'll get sure. there and we'll talk about those another time. Uh, but yeah, so that is uh, Akira. Very fun. Awesome choice mm -hmm. and an awesome movie that you introduced me to. You did not introduce me to this new one, though. However, uh, you and I have mm -hmm. talked ad nauseum about not only this movie, but this series, and that is Star Wars 1977. Uh, we discussed this on episode 33, Joe and I did. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on it. It was written and directed, of course, by George Lucas. Uh, has Mark Hamill, mm. Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Alec Guinness in it, as well as many others, of course. Uh, released May 25th, 1977, with a budget of $11 million. Box office, $775.8 million. I would call that a success. You can check it out on Disney Plus if you're interested in checking it out. But, Riley, uh, I'm just guessing in my brain what you're going to say when I ask this question, but I honestly don't know what your answer is going to be. Why Star Wars? Why was this on the list? Um, And the first one, I mind you. This is A New Hope, yes. the 1977 movie. Go ahead. I can't think of a movie that is so effective at building a world that is um, so believable, but so, um, I don't know, just like like nothing I can really compare to anything else. Like it's not like realistic in any sense, like, but it feels like it is because of the, just the behavior of all the creatures, the aliens, the droids, everyone seems like they have this kind of routine or life they're going about that the camera definitely focuses a lot on. You get this sense of like a, you know, uh, this world seems very believable, even though it's not, um, it almost seems like it's not, uh, really focusing on it, but it's there in the background all the time. There's so many things happening in the corner of your eye. It seems like um, it's like the world is very busy, but constantly interesting. Um, and I kind of, uh, I sadly, I guess, don't see that a lot in films. It's it's very missed. I feel like in some of the newer uh, Star Wars films, or just like you know films in general that's not really a focus or it's just like a it's a very meticulous thing to to do to just kind of like let's just have these robots or whatever doing this in the background let's have these people doing i don't it's just um it's not really needed so if you're focusing on like character development it's you know maybe it could be distracting or um but for the and it also kind of doesn't really happen as much in even the later films in the original trilogy um, I feel like they're really setting up the world in the first one and just kind of like, uh, I think that's why I picked this, you know, over any of the other ones, really. I mean, it was the first one I saw, but it's still actually my favorite. And I guess it always has been um, for whatever reason. I mean, that's, I guess it's, that's the reason really is uh, for me, it's not so much about the the development of Luke or Vader or what have you, or, you know, the force or lightsabers or what whatever it is that people like about the films, um, for me, it's just the the aliens and the droids, really, and the atmosphere and just like the planets they go to. And um, I don't know, just kind of like letting that just kind of do its own thing. Like It kind of doesn't even really matter to me what's going on 
at the forefront. It's like all this stuff in the background is what I like. Um, and I feel like there's more of that in the first film than like an Empire or Jedi. Even though Jedi has a bit of that too, for sure, compared to Empire. Empire is more of like a character study, I feel like, obviously. Um, and that's a lot of people's favorites. But I guess for me, it's just, um, you know, like seeing the Jawas or the, you know, the Sand People or whatever do weird stuff and make weird noises and and everything. Uh, just kind of see them like, you know, barter and everything. It's kind of interesting. and. I don't know. Uh, it just has more of like a classic adventure feel to it too, I guess. The whole like Flash Gordon inspired thing. Um, it, it's just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I get it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're never gonna beat ooh titty, you know, and like <laughs> like, them, like yelling exactly. uh, random stuff. It's it's pretty great. I remember whenever we watched um, the Mandalorian. My wife and I, well, you know, Amanda. Why am I saying it that way? But for the listeners, my wife and I, Amanda. Uh, we watched the Mandalorian and um, you had some um, it's not those aren't the Jawas. They're the. Uh, who does the Utini thing? Why am I forgetting this right now? No, the, the Jawas do that. Oh, that yeah. is the Jawa. OK, so that, that was what was yeah. in my head, but it didn't sound right. Anyways, uh, but their Jawas came on the screen and I just yelled Utini and she goes, <laughs> what are you doing? And I'm just like, just wait. And then they do it. And she goes, how did you oh, yeah. know that? And I'm like, Riley does it all the time. <laughs> Yeah, they're definitely um, yeah. my favorite. I got to say, the yeah, they're they're, sure. they're really fun, and um, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it really sucks, man, because I feel like you know, in terms of substance, this movie has so much. And well, let me rephrase that: mm. not substance, but world building, like you said. Yeah, this. I mean, what a great establishing movie. You know, it sets up right. the characters. Um, and then it establishes the world, or at least what the universe, how it exists. So even if you mm. go to new planets, you understand the physics of the world, you understand the magic of the world, the adventure of the world, you get that already. Uh, my favorite is Empire, but it wouldn't be what it is without this movie. You know what I mean? It is yeah. that kind of progression. I, I love how dark and, and open-ended and everything Empire is, but I love Star Wars. Star Wars, I like it more than Return of the Jedi, though I do like Return of the Jedi, mm. but it's more of like the action movie version, right? Uh, but this one is, man, what what a great... I feel like someone could watch A New Hope and just be like, well, nothing's happening. It's like, dude, everything's <laughs> happening. Like, everything. You're establishing everything for the rest of these movies. You know what I mean? And they're telling you a cohesive story, but it's mm -hmm. not even, like, about that. You know what I mean? Like you said, like, there's so much more that makes it impressive. And, of course, all the special effects, you know, I mean, they've doctored them up so much. You and I have complained about this. I complained about it on episode 33, uh, just about how, like, you know, like everything is different. You know, <laughs> like yeah. like I miss the old puppets, don't you? Right. Yeah, for sure. Man, I miss the old puppets. Fuck that CG shit. It looks terrible. <laughs> it looks so bad. Yeah, You'd think they'd go me. back through now, at least, and make it yeah. look like if they did that, I'd probably even be less upset. But now I'm just stuck mm -hmm. with this stupid mid to late 90s bullshit. God. Right. And it didn't look that bad on VHS because this VHS. No. Right. Anyways, um, but yeah, like, you know, what I think's missing, and I, I just want to go into this for a minute. We don't have to go too long. Sure, on this. sure. What I think's missing in these new ones, you and I have talked about this too. You have the J.J. Abrams episode seven. I like that movie fine, but it is just an, hmm. it is, it's like a, a an empty emulation of these old ones, right? And I think what the new yeah. ones do, because I think they get worse from there. 
what the what these new ones do the numbered uh like canon movies and the kind of uh prequel movies and all the things that they do the individual side movies uh man it is all about this adventure right like every they all of them are focusing often even stuff like rogue one and all that they're trying to focus so hard on trying to capture this star wars adventure without actually looking at those movies and saying what makes these work and uh you know i always i use the example you've heard me use this many times uh it's like it's like someone remaking jaws and making it about the fish do you get what i'm saying right and and i feel yeah. like all the new star wars movies make it about the fish if you get my my meaning you know, it's all about like, we have to have the TIE fighters. We have to have this sound. We have to have the lightsabers. We have to have this. All right, cool. Now let's just make like a Marvel movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, right, yeah. like, it's just like they follow the same kind of, uh, I call it capitalist entertainment. They kind of follow this, like, how can sure, we make a ton yeah. of money and like, and uh, tell these stories. And it's just a real bummer because they forgot how to build worlds. Uh, the only time they build worlds is if they can make money on toys, it seems like. You know, you know right. what I mean? If they give yes. you any details. So it's just like, it's a real bummer, isn't it? Like, how do you feel about all that? Like, doesn't that like bum you out? Um, Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't really have, I guess, that kind of magic that the first one had, or even like the first trilogy in general. Um, I don't know. It just like, it's not exciting to me. It, it doesn't seem as creative it's just you know it's so much based on the characters like the main cast or so much of the film it seems like that and like what they're doing is this I, I don't know it's just almost like a different type of like or a different way of making a film almost that the focus is just very different I feel like yeah or at least compared to a new hope but I mean I, I think you just have that with the that type of film or at least like you know they chose to establish so much of the world and to show you so much of like what's going on in, in the background in these characters kind of daily lives, whether they matter or not, whether you know their name or not, you kind of, you know, it was kind of a genius thing to have all these characters they could then make toys out of, but yet seeing them in the movie for like one second was just very interesting in and of itself, you know? So even though you can see that as like a, a negative thing that, Oh, like they're just having these weird aliens show up for like five seconds, they can make a toy out of it. And then, you know, whatever. I, I kind of like miss that, you know, I miss like, just like unimportant aliens that, you know, you don't need to know who they are. You just kind of see them hanging around doing whatever. Um, like, what is it? Like the Imperial spy I always thought was really interesting. And I don't even know if people know what that is. Cause it's like, they don't, it's not a named character in the movie. It's just the weird, like guy with the huge snout. It's like a narc. I don't even it's like hard to explain unless you know what I mean, but like no, there's I just do. like weird characters like that, or you know, some of the people in like the bar in the first one, um, like Moss Eisley or, or whatnot. There's a, all kinds of you know, weird, interesting aliens in there that you know aren't really doing anything except they're just there. They might get like a close up or something to establish some atmosphere, but and isn't know, that what like the uh, new ones, isn't that all they're interested in? It seems where it's like, oh, hey, that alien was in the original one, let's just throw him in here. Yeah. And it has like right. a different vibe. It feels like forced kind of throwback yeah, rather like than morning in yeah, references or whatever. Rather than these these uh these ones we're talking about where it's it's world building. It's uh you know, right. for example, in world building, something I look for is in this world are there things happening outside uh of the main character, meaning 
Um, are there, mm-hmm. you know, people opening shops and going to work every day? And are there people, you know, are there sheep herders and are there, uh, are there, um, cargo, you know, ship workers or, or whatever I'm making stuff up. But my point is like, sure. is there a world and a, a reality in a, in a, in a, um, what's the word? Like, uh, uh, I can't think of the word, but is there, is there stuff happening outside of the main story? And, uh, Lucas really got it with this man. You, we don't have to know what the aliens do. Who cares? Who cares right. what Boba Fett does outside of this movie? We get that he's a fucking bounty hunter and he fucking he's cool. You know what I mean? Right. I don't need a whole series on this guy. I mean, I'll watch no. it, but I'm just saying like sure. like I don't yeah. need these things. I don't need to know what the rebellion was doing, which is why I'm not a huge Rogue One fan. Send your emails to uh, mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, your hate mail uh, for me saying that because people love that movie. I think it is mediocre at best. Um, and it's just it's just a bummer, man. Uh, you know, I, I remember you saying something. This is the last thing I want to say about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said something that I really, it, it still sits with me. And I, I don't think I've ever told you this. Okay. I bitched and bitched and bitched about uh, the prequel trilogy that was out in the, what was it, the 90s, early 2000s, whichever it was. Sure. And right. uh, I went off with you one time talking about how bullshit they were. And I, I put uh, episode one on and I couldn't even get through it. Like, <laughs> like it was so bad. And I still feel that way. I'm not changing that. But you right. did you did bring up an interesting point. Okay. I went through my whole rant and then you said, I actually prefer them to the new movies. And the level of surprise and awe that I had at this statement. And I said, please do tell. And you said that, you know, these movies are shit, but at least they still have some creativity that Lucas has. They still have a world that exists. There's world building and interesting creative shit that at least is there, even if it's not Mm. used well. At least there's cool shit in here that doesn't exist in other Star Wars movies. You mind expanding Mm. on that a little bit? Because I think because the listeners are only going to get my take uh you know outside of us talking uh about how much i hate those movies but i would love for people to be able to at least hear your perspective because i think it's valid i mean that was i can't even remember how long ago i must have probably made that statement but at least trying to think about how i feel about that now i think just my initial reaction to hearing that statement that i forgot i made is just that like i don't know just like the art direction and stuff of the newer films is just kind of boring like the design of a lot of stuff is just kind of whatever. And like, I mean, I guess I would say that even the prequel trilogy, even if I didn't like how they were used, like, you know, how a lot of the ships looked that they made specifically for those, or, you yeah. know, the new characters, the, you know, like the, what they did with the CG or, or the makeup and just the, uh, you know, the costumes, especially. Don't, uh, don't forget Samuel then, L. Jackson, dude. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of, um, I don't know, like visually, I don't have a huge problem with it. I mean, of course, like, yeah, there's like, like all the green screen and whatnot, but like, you know, if you're okay with that, um, it's, you know, like watching it with the sound off, it's pretty impressive, I would say, you know? <laughs> it's the only way it's impressive because, man, when you turn the well, sound yes, on, right, it pisses me right. off. <laughs> yes. But I, I don't think I would find not, not that I'd have a reason to watch the, you know, the newer ones without sound. But if you just compared them on that level, if you had any reason to, I think it would be what I at least how I feel about them is pretty clear to me. If I, you know, I think that would be very noticeable. 
Well, they are um, very so much. Kind of like the, they're very much new the visual aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they feel like they feel like uh, honestly, the new Star Wars movies just feel like uh, new Marvel movies in the Star Wars universe. They feel yeah. the same, and of course, they're both owned by Disney, so I'm not surprised. But um, yeah, they have, like the bullet points or the check marks, you know, checked off or whatever. But it's not really going out on a limb to do anything that interesting or or that new. As far as like design wise, I feel like yeah, and I don't I, recall I, anything. Of from the new films design wise that really impressed me whether it's like settings costumes technology um i don't even recall like a newer droid or like ship that i thought was that great i mean they're okay but like i don't i mean i wasn't super impressed by much of that yeah so it's just kind of like a variation on something that came before a lot of it so yeah i did you like we don't i don't want to talk about this long but did you like the sure. mandalorian i think you watched it didn't you Yes, I did like The Mandalorian. I did too. I've only seen, was it the first season? Yeah. I don't even know what season they're on now, but. I think they have two. Yeah. They may have three, but I think they have two. I enjoyed it too. Uh, I, I liked the yeah, whole thing. I, I thought it was pretty good. A lot better than those damn movies. Um, but then right. the, the next one, uh, you, <laughs> listeners, you're going to find some um, recurring years that uh, Riley and I both realized before we started recording um and uh 1977 is one of them but another one is 1968 and uh the first movie from 1968 we're going to talk about is George A Romero's Night of the Living Dead directed by Romero and written by Romero as well as John A Russo it was released October 4th 1968 with a budget of $125,000 and it made 30 million dollars wow that is a success for sure it's That's streaming on not. hbo max peacock plus and the criterion collect or uh, the criterion channel rather it is on the criterion collection you can go to amazon or anywhere else that sells uh, those and buy it there i have one um but uh yeah dude i gotta rewatch this movie it's been i own the criterion version and i haven't put it in to rewatch it even during october where we're all kind of cramming horror movies i gotta go back mm. and watch this because like it it's been a while. Uh, it's been a while since I watched this. And the thing is, uh, I remember really, like, the first time I saw it, I was like, uh, okay. And I liked Carnival of Souls better, like, years and years sure. and years ago. And then I rewatched right. it, and I was like, holy shit, this movie's fucked. Like, Night of the Living Dead, like, like rewatching it and getting what it's about the second time I watched it, because I'd been way more in the film at that point. And that was several years later. It's probably, like... I don't know, right around the time I started at Ball State, so probably 2009 or something. I don't know. So this is probably five or six years after I got in the film, and I rewatched this movie, and god damn, did it like hit me differently. And I really loved the tension. I also recognized that you had a black protagonist. Um, and then, of course, going to uh, Ball State and us talking about horror movies and we bring up Night of the Living Dead and I'm learning all of this kind of subtextual stuff and how George A. Romero is this guy who really loves to have like a commentary subtextually behind his films. And man, I just love this movie, but it has at least been a decade since I've seen it. I have to put this in and watch mm. it. What speaks to you about this, though? Like, what do you love about this? Um, it's kind of relentlessly claustrophobic almost the whole way through, even though not as bad initially, there's like unease there, even from the very start, like, yeah. you know, the cemetery scene, uh, in the opening is, is very, you know, like you don't really know what's going to happen at first. And then it just kind of goes nuts from there. It just like kind of escalates and gets, you know, more and more intense, but it doesn't really 
let up much, if at all. There's not really any breathing room in that film. And, you know, it's similar with Dawn of the Dead as well. They're very, I feel like their pacing is just perfect for a horror movie. Um, Almost too perfect because I think like when I watched it when I was a lot younger, when I was like a child, it is, I mean, it still creeps me out, but it is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. And I still, um, I still find that to be true. Um, The atmosphere is just so dense and it's so, the camera work too is just, you know, obviously increasing the claustrophobia dude um, there's that scene in the basement where um I, oh yes, i want to i want to yeah. say it's is it a daughter killing the mother is that what it is uh, yeah i believe that's, I, that's I'm, the case yeah right? i'm pretty sure that's true but whoever it is they're in a basement and that scene yeah. is intense bro um and but the camera yes. works awesome because it, it's super claustrophobic like you said it's super close up on everything but then it also does the the um like it allows you to use your imagination because it is low budget. Yes. So it just cuts to a wall and you see the shadow of like the weapon hacking someone up, you know, mm. man, what a fucking great moment. Holy and shit. And the sound too. And that's so part good. Is just, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the movie is very, I guess, disgusting. I don't know how else to put it. Just the, the organs like falling out of the zombies, the, you know, the, the daughter that's like, you know, murdering her her mother with like a spade, I believe. And then she starts to eat her, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it's so. been a while since I've seen it too, but I believe that's how it went down. Um, I think you you might see like a like a shadow blood splatter kind of thing. I think that's how they did it. I'd have to rewatch it because it's so it's so much like I don't remember how much was invented in my head based on the sound and like you know how much was actually shown. But you um, use but yeah, your imagination like the, so much in it. It's really easy to have yes. memories based on what you think of the movie rather than what's actually happening. And I, I give right. the credit to uh, Romero. He did a great job. And one, once again, to talk about uh, kind of disturbing things towards the end, um, it is one of the most unsettling and depressing endings of a film that I can think of. Uh, I mean, there's, there's definitely more depressing downer films for sure. But just the feeling that I have, like the physical feeling like in my gut, just after watching this, I almost feel sick. It almost makes me <laughs> ill when this movie is over. I can't say that about many films. Most films don't make me feel that kind of physical level of discomfort. Yeah. It kind of goes beyond a mental. It almost is like, you know, pretty draining of an experience. Um, but in a in, not in a bad way, but, you know, like it just uh, – it is it is quite a an experience to have though. Um, I don't know. It's like, I guess it's my classic kind of Halloween pick because of that. It's just so effective every time I watch it. It doesn't really lessen in those aspects, even though I know what's going to happen. I know what to expect. Um, it doesn't feel different. It still has that tension. I, I feel like each time I watch it. Um, yeah. And I don't really get that out of a lot of films on repeat viewings, at least. So yeah. I think that's definitely very, very impressive. It's yeah. This, the, yeah. The tension in that film is, is kind of nuts. <laughs> like, I don't, I can't really compare it to a lot of things. I mean, maybe something like antichrist is just like, but then again, that's not like that the whole time. Yeah. You know, it's a slower build to like the insanity. that's like kind of nail biting, but like, you know, there's definitely other films like, you know, but then the, you know, that, that, that's just a wholly a completely different type of film, but. 
just trying to think of something that made me like feel like I had to go smoke a bunch of cigarettes or something like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like playing the new Resident Evil games. They're just stressful. Yeah, from beginning right, to yes. end. Yeah, and and uh, and speaking of that, even you know, like there's a, there mm. hopefully there's a, an influence there, even on those games. I mean, this movie has influenced so much shit. And you even have yeah. like the Zack Snyder remake, which I also or that's Dawn of the Dead, but still, um, like right. Romero is one of those guys where it's like even when his movies suck, like you can still chew on them because I think some of the later yeah. ones after Dawn of the Dead are pretty bad, and I think they get progressively worse. Um, sure. Of yeah. like the the kind of dead canon right. movies, you know. Um, but at the very least, they have a message. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's, yeah, like, more right. there to chew on, unlike the Dawn of the Dead remake, which is definitely more of, like, just the horror spectacle, which, again, I remember mm. liking it. I have not rewatched it in a long time. I had a great time with it. But it's just a different thing, you know? And we had, right. we had uh, we actually had Galen Ross on um, on our fifth episode. So if you've never listened to that, back in November 2020, uh, we had Galen Ross. She's in Dawn of the Dead. Um, she was just talking about how George A. Romero is just such a thoughtful... I don't remember if we mm. did this on air or off air, but she was just telling us about how much she missed him and how thoughtful he was all the time, just for with the actors, okay. with the story, with everything. Like, just he always had a reason for things. And I just love filmmakers like that, you know? And this is also 1968, so the, the production code just ended recently. Um, you have people like uh, John Cassavetes and Romero and different people doing these kind of, like, independent films. And they're like surprisingly powerful. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, Night of the Living Dead is one I need to revisit uh, and uh, talk more about. But I, it is in my memory, it's my favorite Romero movie. Um, would you yeah. say the same? Um, yeah, I would. As much as I like Dawn of the Dead, it's just a different, you know, it's almost, I mean, it's kind of like comparing Alien to Aliens, at least for me, because I like no, them I both. No, totally I mean, I agree. A lot of people maybe don't see that or if they don't like aliens, maybe that wouldn't work as a comparison. But because there is more of a focus on action and it's not as it's bleak in a different way. I mean, I don't know. It's just um, it's just a wider scope. They're, they're doing so much more with the setup. There's a lot more characters involved. Well, you know, alien, it's not. Yeah. Alien is a sci fi horror movie and aliens mm-hmm. is a sci fi action movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like it's like they're both sci-fi, but they just have like different peripheral focuses. And Night of the Living right. Dead and Dawn of the Dead, I agree with you. I actually think that's a really great point. And I think um, I think more people probably like Aliens better than Alien, actually. And that's probably true with Dawn of the Dead, to be honest. Uh, which kind yeah, of blows my right. mind because in my memory, Night of the Living Dead is the jam. Like that's the one I like. Right. And and those certain parts of age because it's an it's a, an independent film. From like a billion yeah. years ago, it's like sixty, almost sixty years ago. Um, right. You know, uh, I get that, but man, they're but they don't make them like that. You know what I'm saying? Like they right. don't make yes. movies like that anymore. So it's still fresh in its own way. And if you can actually just allow your imagination to run with this story, I think it really makes it. I think it's good. And just the the whole setup of the the house being invaded, all the steps they have to go through to try to you know, reinforce and, and fortify everything that is just a lost cause trying to get to like the truck, all of those classic elements that have been 
the and radio used in so many other films and yeah and it's like video games and other things have like all it's like the playbook really it's like the zombie movie playbook at least if you're dealing with a, a smaller kind of setting um it really kind of set the a lot of the tropes and standards you know even though it it, it was influenced by uh the last man on earth the vincent price uh I guess I say vampire in quotes. I guess they're vampires. I don't know if they're actually called that in the film, but that's the closest thing. They're not really zombies, but it was like a precursor to this kind of film as far as having a similar setup. Um, and it was definitely influential on Night of Living Dead in that aspect. And it was like, um, it was an adaptation of, gosh, I'm trying to remember the book. It was, uh, gosh, it was also, they they adapted it as Omega Man with Charlton Heston, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I do, I Which do, is I do. funny because it, it also has some of those similar elements in that film as, as well. Um, well. I'm trying to remember it. It's it's this horrible, th- they remade it with Will Smith and I didn't watch it. But, <laughs> I am uh, legend. <laughs> yes, I am legend. Thank you. Yeah, yes. I haven't seen that either. It might be awesome uh, for all I know. Yeah. But uh, Last Man on Earth was an adaptation of I Am Legend, and I believe that Night of Living Dead was then directly influenced by that. I don't think it was the book. I think it was Last Man on Earth was the kind of influential as far as the the house setup part, sure. but yeah. like the because the the vampires were kind of trying to, of course, feed on this guy. Because what else are they going to do if there's no one else around? That's like their food source. So. Well, let me say um, this real quick, because this is really interesting. Yeah. I just looked up a list of, uh, I've done this many times before, but I looked up a list right. of zombie movies, and and I am using Wikipedia. This is by no means an extensive list or even the most accurate, I recognize, but just as a quick search here. So, you know, they're, mm. they have zombies all the way back to 1919, okay? But they're not the same oh, yeah, kind of right. zombies. You know what I'm they're saying? like the voodoo like, zombies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really or, or yeah, ones, like I Walked right? with a Zombie, which is what you're referring to, that sort of a thing, or the Ghost sure. Breakers, or, you know, all, all of mm. these movies. But they're not the same. Yeah, it's like a lot of voodoo zombies, or, right. but they don't function the same. They don't have the same motives, quote unquote, however you want to put it. Yeah. And then you get uh, fucking Night of the Living Dead. Okay, mm. and uh, that movie changes fucking everything. I feel like yes. because then you get right. movies just a few years later, like "I Eat Your Skin," you know, mm. <laughs> like right. yeah. like movies like that title, and it's just like okay, cool. Like you just changed how people see zombies. It's not just like yeah. voodoo or like people who got infected and are acting weird. You know, it now it's like no, these are just like brain dead humans. Uh, yes. that are like eating brains and intestines fucking rules, dude. Like w- what an important movie. Yeah, definitely. So anyways, uh, neither the living dead, dude. I, I love this movie again. If you guys want to check it out, if you've never seen it, shame on you. Also, all of these are shame on you. I feel like, uh, but if you, uh, if you, if you have seen it, just want to rewatch it, uh, you should revisit it. Also HBO max Peacock plus and the criterion channel. Um, or you can be cool like me, and whenever Barnes & Noble has a 50% off sale, just go buy the Criterion. It'd be great. Uh, The next movie I want to talk about, we have two back-to-back 2001 movies, okay? Yeah, right. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this because, yet again, this is another movie that I may have watched once since you showed this to me, maybe. I know I've seen it more than once, but they were both so long ago. I don't remember right. enough, and I will bring up my favorite part to kind of transition to you telling <laughs> okay. me. Okay. But this is 2001's Ghost World, written and directed by Terry Zweigoff, uh, based on a comic book by Daniel Klaus. Is it Klaus? I don't know how to say the last name. 
Close. Oh gosh, I for, yeah, whatever the fuck it is. I, I don't know for certain. Yeah, yeah, C L O W E S. So you can just go find him. Uh, cast is Thora Birch, Scarlett Johansson, and Steve Buscemi. Uh, release date September twenty first two thousand one with a budget of seven million dollars and it made eight point eight million so it made its money back at least uh, not a raging success but at least you know not a <laughs> failure um, and then uh, you this isn't streaming anywhere that I can find but it is uh, up for rent on Amazon and other platforms wherever you rent movies and uh, I just want to start with this what other movie has a fucking ripped redneck mullet guy with nunchucks. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> that is the that is the um, one part I vividly remember, Riley, because you and I thought that was so funny, and it's such a short, mon- like trivial thing to me, because it's he's just like this- shirtless and has like a cut off uh, jean shorts, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, and he just so. has like a thirteen, like a fifteen pack on his abs, <laughs> like he's just so ripped, but he's like a skinny. Like a uh, yes. lanky guy, but he's just ripped, right? And uh, dude walks into this convenience store and he gets pissed about something. I don't remember. And he just busts out some nunchucks and he just starts <laughs> screaming at people. Man, that shit is fucking funny. But I, I remember this movie being weird because if I remember yes. correctly, and I'm going to pass it off to you, but if I remember correctly, Steve Buscemi is like trying to get with Thora Birch, but she's just like a teenager. I don't remember the story. Kind do you of, remember kind of what's going yeah. on and why do you like this? I, I like this movie, by the way. And Criterion put this out as well. I need to rewatch it, though. Um, Let's see. Well, I think a lot of it was – I don't want to say it, it was my age at the time, but that definitely was a factor. Um, being a teenager, you know, I saw this around when it came out. Um, I was probably like 16, I think, or so. And um, it just really resonated with me, just kind of the attitudes of the – the main cast, like at least, um, you know, Scarlett Johansson and Thora Birch's characters, uh, just kind of, I found them to be really funny. Like, you know, these kind of, uh, really sarcastic, um, you know, people that kind of are like too cool for everybody else, but they just hang out with each other. You know, they're kind of just like this pair that are inseparable. Um, and they just spend a lot of time kind of observing these weird people, you know, that, that they're surrounded by and kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a, but it's also, it's very funny, but it's also very sad too, because there's the kind of falling apart of their friendship. So there's the whole like post high school, we're going in two different directions and we're kind of establishing our own identity or like social identity and different friend groups. And like, you know, and then, so you see kind of like uh, Scarlett Johansson's character kind of, eventually kind of more and more leaves the the picture really just you know the interactions with her become more and more negative as they have less and less in common um and it's kind of like heartbreaking and then you have all these like ways of um i don't want to say attempts to replace her but you know it's trying to like move on or like you know thor birch's character kind of trying to establish her own identity and like what she's going to do and it's just nothing really quite works out for her yeah, and Steve Buscemi's character kind of like comes in, and it's kind of like a he's kind of a person that they both make fun of at first. Like a lot of the characters in the movie, they kind of scoff at a lot of you know these weirdos that like are around them doing odd things or you know uh, having odd interests. And you know he's an obsessive uh, record collector of like old jazz, like forty fives, and uh, you know to it just like completely. Um, 
know how to put it. It's like his his weird, like super obsessive hobby. He sets up his little kind of like a garage sale and, and sells a few of them, but then he hangs out with people that that's like all they talk about. It's like, a, you know, they're all these weird record collecting people. Um, and they all brag about like the records they have and kind of like shame some of the other people for not having as, as good of collections. And, you know, it's all pretty <laughs> ridiculous. And uh, so they kind of like make fun of these people because they're just a bunch of like nerds that have like very specific interests that they don't really understand. Um, but then, you know, it's almost like in this weird kind of, you know, unexpected way, they end up like actually kind of like, hanging out and having this connection and like uh i don't know um thor birch's character ends up getting you know getting into the music and like is like romantically involved with this guy and he's just kind of like you know doomed to failure but yet also very human and like it it made sense given the the circumstances even though it's it's you know messed up it's uh it's also very sad and, and i feel very like human and uh i don't know there's a lot of heart there i feel like there's it's kind of um similar to one of my other picks for you know this year that we might get to uh there's a really interesting mix of comedy and you know like serious drama and just like kind of like heart-wrenching moments well i think i think the important thing to take from this for people is you're going to look and it's going to call it a teen comedy or something i think that's just like just a gross misrepresentation on the surface, yeah, yeah, but because because really what it's what it doing, is. and and even if you don't uh, have like a super emotional attachment to what's happening, like what they're getting at though is like a very real truth that people mm. coming of age go through. Uh, and I'm even just looking at a picture, and Thora Birch is in a raptor, a bright blue raptor tee with her blue hair, yes. and her thick rimmed glasses. And there's just something about her that remind not exactly one for one, but I mean that reminds <laughs> me of you when we were teenagers. And sure. um, okay. there's something about Scarlett Johansson, who is a little bit more just like toned down. Uh, granted, I would yeah. have wore that Raptor shirt at that time as well. <laughs> that reminds me of me, though we never had a falling sure. out like this, though our lives did like go different directions. Luckily, we've stayed sure. friends for so long. Um, yes. But I, I do I do love this because there is the moment where Thora Birch, if I remember correctly, is talking with Steve Buscemi and she's getting really into the music and she's hanging out with him a lot. And this goes on for mm-hmm. like 10 minutes. And then uh, it cuts back to her seeing Scarlett Johansson at some point, or I think Scarlett Johansson's character is working and she goes to her job or whatever happens. Yes. And uh, she's like, yeah, I've just been listening to a lot of jazz, you know? And she's like, what are you doing? Like, when did you get into this? And she's like, you just need to get into it. It's really cool. You should like listen to jazz. And Scarlett Johansson's just like, you're getting too close to this guy. You know, it's like this kind of weird falling out because their paths have went in different directions and the identity thing's key. Like what you said, man. It, there's, uh, it's about like finding yourself, and sometimes you can't always bring the people along that you want to because finding yourself also equals them finding themselves. And man, you make me want to watch this right now, dude. Terry Zweigoff also did my, my possibly like gun to my head right now. It's my default mm. favorite, which is the Crumb documentary. I think that's just the greatest yeah. doc. Uh, now, yes, of course, if I great. really thought about it, maybe it wouldn't be my favorite favorite. I'd have to really think about that, but it's definitely top three. Probably it is so good. Yeah. And the same guy did that and he did this as well. And I, I just can't wait to go back and revisit this. Cause you know, mm-hmm. I open up with a, with this idiot who's super ripped 
and has a mullet and has nunchucks. And that's just not an actual, an actual representation of what's happening. But there but is a lot of that. Though. There, there is. is a lot of weird individual, just kind of like background characters in this film that are really, really funny, though. They give a lot of people really good lines that are just in like one scene. Um, so there's a lot of just really great uh, dialogue, I would say. It's kind of like how I feel... Um, kind of like some of the strengths I feel like Mike Judge has with dialogue of how he makes people so hilariously stupid. Like he's, he's like extremely talented at making dumb people sound very accurately dumb, but also making them funny um, <laughs> to an extent that I can't, you know, he's like very, he has an ear for that, I guess. I don't know how else to put yeah. it. And I feel like it's similar with this film to where a lot of these kind of like unimportant characters that just show up for, to say one kind of dumb throwaway line are just really, really funny. Um, because the, you know, di the dialogue and the, the acting is so like on point for that stuff. They got all these interesting, like, you know, weird characters that kind of flesh out the world because I feel like that's kind of like part of like what the comic was about, you know, even though they're very, very different. And um, the film goes much farther in depth with the characters and actually goes kind of, I would say beyond the the comics really short. So I feel like the movie kind of like expands, but also goes in a different direction. So there, you know, I, I like them both for different reasons, but that was kind of like this, one of the very similar things about both of them is this kind of like the very odd characters that kind of make up this world, you know, that are just kind of like absurd and, and hard to take serious. And that's kind of like, yeah. You know, I'm looking at this list again, and and uh, I'm looking at Ghost World, and I'm going to introduce the next mm. movie because we can kind of talk about sure. both a yes. bit. Because you're making mm. me realize how many similarities there actually are with these yeah. kind of teen-based, like independent yep. films at this time. And yes. so, Ghost World is 2001, but then we also have uh, a movie that is at at the time is probably one of yours and my favorite movies, at least newer yeah, movies. For sure. And that's Donnie yes. Darko from 2001, written and directed by Richard Kelly. The cast is actually really crazy if you look at it now. Even yeah, then, Jake Gyllenhaal. So. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jenna Malone, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Patrick Swayze in a smaller role, <laughs> as well as Noah Weil, Drew Barrymore, and the smallest maybe role of them all, uh, Seth Rogen, who has one of my favorite lines when he looks yeah. at, I think, Jenna Malone and just goes, I like your boobs. <laughs> <laughs> But he says it exactly <laughs> like that, though. Yeah, dude, it's, it's so, so deadpan. Deadpan, yeah. yeah. It's so great, and it's so funny to see Seth Rogen, who is now like a huge star, and to see yeah, him as this just sure. like little chubby bully. You know what I mean? Um, and all his only—that might be his only line, as far as I know. But you know, the only memorable line, at least, that he has: "I like your boobs." Like, just super deadpan. Dude, you and I used to die laughing. <laughs> I want to say a couple of things about this movie, and then I'll, I'll pass it off to you to kind of talk about sure, what sure. we were just saying, but in this context, too. Because here, we also have two people. In this in this case, there's a romance between the two leads. Um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal being the main lead, of course, but Jenna Malone being kind of the co-star, I would say, uh, to an extent. And... um. Yeah, this is very much, um, I think there's a lot of identity here as well. Um, and, uh, we're, you know, we're dealing with uh, the relationship between these two characters. And I wouldn't say they grow apart per se, but I think it's more of, um, 
Uh, there's something about Jake Gyllenhaal's character that is always kind of absent, you know, always um, mm. uh, separate from everyone else. There's always this uh, almost padding between him and other characters, with the exception of Jenna Malone, who he kind of brings in uh, into his bubble, so to speak. This uh, this came out October 26, 2001, limited release. Uh, it was made for $4.5 million, made $7.5 million, which is cool. Somehow later it just became a huge pop culture, like shirts at yeah. Hot Topic movie. Uh, but in 2001, it was just a very, very moderate indie maybe success. Like it kind of just did its yeah. thing. It's on HBO Max if you want to check it out. And I just want to say, um, I think for the most part, Jenna Malone sucks now. And I don't mean to be mean, but um, but this is when Jenna Malone was cool. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like she did yeah. some prior to, I would say prior to um, uh, the Ballad of Jack and Rose, where she, f I think that was the first early movie that I remember. I think that was like 2005 mm -hmm. or six, um, where she actually started taking on kind of her new, like I'm gonna be kind of a bad cool girl. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, sure, and right. uh, that just does not work. It feels so performative to me. I just, yeah. I can't believe it. But these, I believe a billion times more she's just right. kind of like an average person and i think it's great uh i, I rewatched donnie darko a few years back and mm -hmm. uh, and probably five years or so but it really held up for me i actually really yeah. loved this movie and it surprisingly holds up i think richard kelly's a bit underrated because even when he has some uh you know lower like lesser successes things like the box uh or or right. his uh cult film basically the movie mm -hmm. that has built a cult following southland tales which i need to see right um arrow put that out which i need to get that blu-ray uh, after i see it but yeah um but i hear it's awesome and my my buddy thrasher uh really really loves that movie as well and he always tells me i have to check it out because it's not what i think and one day we watched the trailer and i'm like holy shit this is not what i think this is like it crazy is. it looks wild um, it is extremely funny and entertaining, and I need to rewatch it. It's just I don't even know what to compare it to. It is its own thing. Yeah, early sure. early movie with The Rock in it, which is fun. Um, and a great role too. He's very well cast. I know. Uh, I mean, all I, the I mean, the cast in that movie in general is pr also pretty insane. Um, but yeah, I definitely would second that recommendation for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching that one because again, I haven't seen the whole thing. But anyways, Jenna Malone mm. was cool at this point. But this is a movie, yeah. and I'll, this is really going to kind of highlight one of the reasons it holds up for me and that I love it so much, is beyond just the tone and the soundtrack, the original soundtrack, fuck the special edition, by the way. We're talking about yeah, the original movie. Yeah, I'm not movie. a fan, really. So the original version, soundtrack, right? I mean, that turned me on to Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears is one of, like, my all-time yeah. favorite fucking songs. And it's, like, my – it's Amanda and I's, like, it's our song. Like, when it comes on, we always, like, look right. at each other because it's just, like, the, the song that reminds us of each other. And it's so great. Um, but, man, you and I, you know, I watched this at my dad's house. I believe we were together, but I don't remember us being together. But I believe mm. we were. And we talked about this movie for, like, six fucking hours. Like yes. we had, we yeah. built like concrete theories on what happens at the end of this movie and how it all functions. Right. And we had all of this evidence throughout the movie. We, this is a movie that we were able to really chew on. And I think yes. that on top of just like the overall vibe and everything that I like and, um, just like some really, really funny lines, especially with the delivery, 
um, yeah. you know, uh, and things like that. It's it's just like a really great, you know, is that all the gusto you can muster? <laughs> like <laughs> like yeah. those, uh, I think Patrick Swayze is just like really great in it or or the um, oh, for sure. what's the song um notorious you know whenever they're oh, yeah, dancing yeah. when that uh-huh. just like it cuts to it and it just kicks in it's really funny i mean you know again like you were saying with ghost world like there's a lot of funny moments in this but this is not a mm. haha funny movie to me i think this is very no. much uh, a very thoughtful um interesting kind of teen based i won't call it a teen movie but like a teen based movie right. why do you love this so much uh, oh, there's a lot of reasons, really. It, it definitely checks a lot of boxes that I don't typically always see in one film. Um, so you have a lot of the kind of, you know, genre references. There's a lot of like, uh, you know, stuff with like time travel and, um, gosh, there's um, just kind of like Donnie as a character is really interesting to me. Um, I guess I could probably relate to him on certain levels at the time I watched this as well as a teenager. Um, just, uh, I mean, he's an outcast. Yeah. And you were a bit of an outcast, Riley. (laughs) Yeah, right. I definitely was. Um, but I'm trying to, trying to think here. So you have kind of the sci-fi stuff. You have like kind of the, the teen, you know, whatever angst whatever you want to call it, you know, there's kind of some horror elements too, for sure. Uh, It's a very weird film. It definitely has atmosphere. The soundtrack, like you said, is amazing. There's just like a lot of things going for it. Um, Like you said, the cast is amazing. The performances are amazing. It's funny. Uh, The dialogue's great. The writing's great. There there really isn't um, anything too bad I could really say about it even now. Like it's, um, it really holds up, like you said. Uh, you know, outside of like the the issues I have with the the I don't know what is it the director's cut I guess yeah. probably called also not a fan of special the changes, edition but yeah as far as the theatrical cut I mean yeah it's just it kind of really stands the test of time um, yeah I don't I don't even know it just kind of has there's a lot of the uh, it just has that movie magic I don't know what to call it there's yeah. something special about it that it's very rewatchable. Um, it kind of just always works for me. Uh, it's always funny too. It doesn't, I don't really get sick of that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, kind of like with, with ghost world, I guess, to give a little bit more background. Um, these were kind of two of the films I saw where I really got more into like, uh, I guess, you know, current, like American independent cinema, more or less. Uh, and just a lot of stuff coming out around that time. I was especially drawn to or just resonated with me more. And uh, so I think a lot of, you know, those two films especially were really important in that way, but they, they also do stand alone and um, are, are great just outside of that. But I think for me, there's like a special, not really just nostalgia there, but they were kind of like a, I don't know, like a, there was like a before and after, right. They're like a dividing line or something I could, I, that year, I guess, specifically, was um I was really focused more on watching a lot more films and um exploring more types of films than film history and just what have you and I was like a lot more into genre stuff that was more specific before that so you know for this maybe it was just like combining a lot of those elements that you had like the the kind of sci-fi horror stuff you had the comedy and the the kind of coming of age stuff all in one film yeah um and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's just a very good mix of, of elements. 
So it's really hard to say specifically, like, why, why is this film great? It's just like, why is it not? You know, it's kind of like hard to, I don't know. Um, there's, you know, it, it reminds, there's the uh, classic dinner table scene where Maggie Gyllenhaal yes. and, and Jake fight. And it reminds me of you and your sister, Lydia, a little bit. Okay, um, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that you guys would ever do this, really, but just I just love because uh, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. Like, there's a point where Donnie says, "You're such a fuck ass," which is the funniest <laughs> shit I'd ever heard at that time. Yeah, uh, someone calling someone a fuck ass. Um, and but <laughs> right. but it's you know uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character Elizabeth doesn't look at Donnie and start yelling at him. She starts laughing and goes, "What? Did you just call me a fuck yeah. ass?" And and then she says, "You can go suck a fuck." <laughs> and it's It's just like like i just love like their parents are trying to get them to shut up but they just keep saying these like really Mm. stupid lines or uh you know there's a there's a point where i love donnie's uh like little friend group you know that he kind of outgrows by the end of the film but uh, early on he's just like friends with the nerds that get bullied you know right right and uh he has a friend and they're smoking a cigarette at the bus stop and one goes that's some good shit huh and Donnie just goes, it's a fucking cigarette. <laughs> yeah, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, and it's just, um, or like, uh, do you believe in time travel? You know, like, there's like these right. like weird yeah. lines that are delivered. I love this movie so much. Um, and uh, like I said, the, the friend group and Donnie's great. I love Donnie and Jenna Malone's character. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they, I think they're so great. What happened to Jenna Malone, dude? I actually really love her in these early independent movies. Um, yeah, but something went wrong, man. <laughs> like um, the last movie I saw her in was uh, Antebellum, which I talked about on the show. Um, and we oh, actually gosh. had the filmmakers uh, come on. And I don't mean to bury them. They're great guys. Um, but uh, yeah, that movie was problematic in many ways to me. Um, not problematic like racially, like they might imply, but I just mean like problematic is in the film's uh, not great. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> um, but the... Uh, um, Jenna Malone's in it though, and it right, she right. she plays like a Southern Belle. You're thinking yeah, of this right now, of... and you're seeing how this doesn't work, right, Riley? No, it seems <laughs> a bit much because it's, it's very to... much what you're thinking. I guarantee. Um, yeah. yeah, and and it sucks because I really love her in these movies, and it goes back to my my uh, I my theory maybe or however you want to put it, where I talk about how like every established actor has at least one good movie even if they're not particularly great in it but the movie's great there's at least yeah. one movie and if jenna malone has one it's donnie darko she has more than that but i'm just saying you know right. like donnie darko would be my choice um and hey the rock has a good movie because southland right, yeah. tales right that's so true. yeah um but anyways uh that's enough burying that uh yeah so those are the double 2001 movies and uh you introduced both of these to me which I'm very thankful right. because they were like really influential, especially Donnie Darko in particular was really influential on me in terms of like digging into like learning about independent movies at this time and really yeah. digging into and finding a lot of movies that I still talk about and love to this day, like the squid and the whale, which came out four years later. And you also mm-hmm. told me about, but those were sure. the types yeah. of movies I was digging into. But I want to move forward because I want to get through a, a few more of these. Uh, we have we have plenty of time, but uh, okay, I want to make sure because sure, there there's at least one movie I want to talk about so badly, but I don't want to uh, the I don't want to proverbially blow our load too early. 
So um, I, yeah. I'll go with this because I know you love this. We talked about Night of the Living Dead. We talked about how much that impact, like how, what kind of impact that had on you and me as well. Yes. And how good mm-hmm. it is. I think you could say many of the same things about the 1977 Suspiria by uh, yes. by Dario Argento, written by Dario Argento and Daria uh, Nicolodi, based on a book by Thomas De Quincey. And uh, it was released February 1st, 1977 in Italy, but August 12th, 1977 in the U.S. It is uh, You can rent it on Amazon or any other uh, platforms that you rent. It will definitely be there. Dude, all I got to say is this. The visuals are fucking awesome, and the music yes. is killer, dude. And I, well, no pun yeah. intended, but I mean, like, legit. Like, it's wild. I know why you love this movie, but tell our listeners, why do you love this movie? Oh gosh, where do I start? Um, I mean, it is very much a like supernatural giallo, I guess, if you had to put it in a genre, which is kind of like the Italy's slasher genre that was kind of influenced by the kind of like the, you know, the cheap pulpy, um, like mystery novels. They, I believe that's the Italian word for yellow, and that's yeah. where that comes. So they from. had they had these books that you could find yeah. at like dime shops or whatever, and they had a yellow binding on the side, and they were all these kind of right. like pulpy, scary books or whatever. But yeah, so giallo is the word for yellow. So they call them giallo films because mm. they're kind of based, um, or at least right. influenced by these kind of pulpy books. Yeah. But the the giallo was really the prototypical slasher because pretty much all of the American or you know other Directors from elsewhere were directly influenced by them, whether you're talking about Halloween or, you know, uh, Friday, the 13th. Like Friday the 13th, yeah. like a lot of the earlier major slasher films all are, you know, taking a page from from those which were taking a page from, you know, these pulp mystery novels. So it was interesting because you had the the Giallo films that were more these formulaic kind of murder mysteries with like early slasher elements in them. They're very much like Agatha Christie, but with like more blood and violence, you know, as far as the movie <laughs> adaptations, yeah. right? They're like very violent, but like had a very almost, I don't know what to, how to put it. It's not like a typical mystery, but more like what you'd expect. It's just more graphic in how it was depicted. Um, and uh, Suspiria was like this, a supernatural version of that. Whereas like, you know, um, Dario Argento was very known for doing those kinds of films. And this was like, you know, him doing like a, a supernatural version. It had like a twist to it. It was, it was like, here's that kind of thing, but it's almost like a different genre because it's so it's taking pieces of that, but it's like mixing it with like Snow White and all these more interesting, you know, like uh fantasy and folklore kind of influences. Um and uh, and just to add to that gosh, real quick this, before you continue, I just want to yeah. say that um, Suspiria sure. is you know this is uh, really late Gallo if I if I'm not mistaken because yes. uh, that right. it kind of just started to fizzle out toward uh, by this point. Um, so yeah. you know some might not even consider this one, but I like you would, and I might need to brush up on my Gallo stuff. Um, but yeah, this is like a much later one, and you're right; it does definitely take an interesting step in a different direction. I think it's interesting though. To look at, you know, a lot of Dario Argento's like bangers, starting with Suspiria yeah. and moving on into the eighties, are like we kind of call them Gallo films, but they're not really at that point. Like, <laughs> like that wasn't really much of a thing. They feel that yeah, way. Don't get me wrong, of, but I mean, like right, in right. terms of like the proper 
uh, movement, if you will, or however the genre yeah. or whatever. Um, they were outside of that. I find that really interesting. I just wanted to add that while you keep going. Yeah, I mean, definitely past like 1980 or so, they definitely weren't really a thing anymore. So this was kind of like the very, very end of that for sure, um, where they were kind of mutating into other things or, you know, having these other influences. Um, they weren't really the kind of standard fare that you would expect, like, the, you know, from like the earlier 70s or whatever, um, like those types of, or the late 60s even. Those are, you know, very different Uh but they still have a lot of the same elements, at least in Suspiria. You still have like the the black gloved clad uh, killer, right? That is not seen, but you see their hands, you see the gloves committing these murders. And uh, just a lot of the kind of tropes that are associated with these, you know, types yeah, of films. And, and uh, we, we get a lot of these movies in the U.S. too. Stuff like De Palma's Dress to Kill, as well as all the other yeah. thrashers. But we also get those kind of like psychological thrillery uh, yes. type mysteries like uh, dress to kill and things like that, which is interesting. Yeah. So, um, gosh, it's a, I don't remember exactly how this all played out, but there was something to wear. I think it was three strip technicolor that they used, um, possibly. And it was a outdated format. You couldn't really get the machines to like process the film, I believe, let alone probably the film stock, like really, um, I think it was whatever type of film it was, they had to like source the last like, you know, uh, piece of machinery to actually be able to do anything to probably, you know, use the film from like China. And then it was like destroyed afterwards. So it was very much a, uh, not only like a late giallo, it's like you're using this kind of like dead coloring process that gives the film such a vibrant, interesting look, you know, that if they, you know, just barely were able to even do it. So I think a lot of the, the elements of the film are just kind of like really interesting, um, but work so well. Um, so yeah, the, the color in this film's insane. Uh, like, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's so vibrant, obviously because they were going for the kind of snow white, like literal. Yeah. No, literally Argento had cinematographer uh, Luciano. Uh, I think it's Tavoli or whatever. I had the cinematographer mm. sit down and watch Snow White, and he wanted him to model the color scheme after that film, which is crazy. Right. Yeah. It, it's so interesting to see this kind of, like, setup where you have these, you know, like, witches or whatnot, like, just brutally murdering these ballet dancers that live in this kind of creepy dormitory, right, with these, you know, unrelenting, insane, very bizarre film score. Probably one of the creepiest film scores I've ever heard. Um, I know my sister was creeped out by it alone. If I even just like mimic the the weird like chanting in it, she'll like get pissed at me and tell me to stop because it it like creeps. <laughs> Will her she out call you a fuck ass? <laughs> and she probably would, yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it's um, I don't even know. It's it's like weird Italian like synth prog with like chanting in it, but it, there's a lot of weird guttural noises that kind of like try to. Uh, enact like the noises of like the witches and stuff in the songs they're very interesting um and very creepy because of that uh i feel like the soundtrack is like a character in the film almost you know it's so important to yeah. the film it's so present and uh just a lot of the atmosphere and everything is so built on it um but the camp a lot of the camera stuff is pretty pretty nuts too there's a lot of shots of like uh you know 
objects that are filmed in really threatening looking ways. And you don't know, like, there's just like this sense of paranoia about like normal everyday things. Like it, like the opening um, airport scene, especially with the doors. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. The where they have the Sagan. The like opening scene with the, at the yeah. airport yeah. before the, before they even get to the school, like the airport doors are focused on and make a really distinct noise and they like focus on them and, and they, they almost like, it's almost like a horizontal like a, guillotine or something. Yeah. It looks like a knife or something. The way they film it, it, it just looks like it's going to like stab somebody like the opening and closing of the door almost seems like threatening to, you know, and, and it's like very off putting. Um, and then you have the whole like weird, like woods chase scene with the crazy soundtrack coming in. Um, and like the whole, like all the, everything with the rain, like the whole, the whole buildup to that, just getting to the school is really intense and there's not really anything happening. It's all like in the character's head. Yeah. So the, the kind of, um, the atmosphere and this, the tension that's built on of just like the, the paranoia that is like, it's like an unknown paranoia. You don't know what the threat is at that point. Um, there's just the, the very like ever present unease of like, what is, you know, it's just, it's like the, the presence of evil is being kind of like displayed, but not right. It's like, it's like being felt by the characters and like the camera is kind of like, you know, expressing that, but you don't really know that at that, or you don't really know what's happening. It's just, everything is kind of off and just, you know, very creepy. And uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think I, I can't think of too many openings that are that effective at setting up just like that kind of dread and you just don't even know what it is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, I, it's I, not even I, like a, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say just to give people a heads up. If you haven't seen the original mm. Suspiria, which the remake I actually thought was pretty good. It just pales in comparison in my opinion. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, the thing about the original is uh, it takes place during a time when Italian movies were all dubbed. Um, so all of the voices, including the English, uh, speaking cause the, the star of the movie is Jessica Harper. If you go look her up, you will know her. She's an, uh, an American actor. Uh, but, uh, everything's dubbed, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, cause back then yeah. they would shoot the film and then they would dub everyone's voices over afterwards. Um, so that's the thing. And also the, uh, the goblin soundtrack is interesting because apparently mm. Argento would play it like full blast on stage or like um, on set when certain things were yeah. happening just to like freak the fuck out of the cast, <laughs> you know? uh, much like your sister or you where right, yeah. you hear this music and it's all these weird guttural, like strange uh, things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're getting a lot of, uh, of that sort of behavior on set to uh, elicit good performances, etc. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, the the percussion is really interesting, and they, what the, the use of the bazooki is like one of the main elements. That's a pretty interesting instrument to use, as you know, like one I was not really familiar with before hearing the soundtrack. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, I don't, this is, um, once again, it's like a very unique film. I can't really, I mean, you can kind of compare it to other Argento films, but not really, because there is like a trilogy that this is the first uh, film in. I've not even seen the third one because there's a huge break in between, what is it? Uh, I think it's Inferno. Is that right? Is that, yeah. I think that's what the second one's called, which, you know, I like, but it's it's different. It's um, 
I don't know. I like it a lot. It's just kind of like not quite the same. Um, but yeah, I, I never saw the third one. Um, but outside of that, really, like comparing it to Inferno, I can't really compare it to to much else. Which one? Just, which uh, one was the third one though? I don't remember. Was it was it just a it was opera? Like Mother of Tears, or I don't even know if that's the correct title. Because there's like names for each of the witches. And Mother I don't of know Tears. If that's what it yeah, was. yeah. Is that huh. the? I think that's the title, right? Came out in two thousand seven. I, I never saw it. Yeah, so way later. Um, but there's just a lot of very bizarre things that happen in this film. Um, very dreamlike uh, imagery. Like there's like a, there's like a scene where trying to there's like a chase scene that ends up like what is it? Uh, someone goes through a window and they end yep. up in a room that's just full of barbed wire. Just a, a complete full room of barbed wire that they they just end up falling into and it's trying it's, to yeah. run away. It's like lit real super weird. It it sounds really dumb to talk about it, but the way that they do it in the film is actually really cool. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think in that one, they fall through the window. I thought that one was the one where uh, she's running from something because she's freaking out. She opens a door and runs into a room, but she just, it like just falls like the doorways like up on the wall. And I think she just falls in. I could be wrong. Um, she might fall into the. She might come from above. I don't. Remember that's what I mean. Yeah, the door is like right. on the wall above, not on the ground. Yeah, and she falls in. I'm sure. pretty sure because the glass breaking is the opening scene with the uh, okay yeah. woman uh, being hung. I'll just say it that way. The the death scenes are very. How would you describe them? They're they're really interesting. They're not realistic they're at all. This is the time also no. where the blood was like bright paint red. You know what I mean? Like yes. it's not realistic. Right. This is extremely stylized. You don't watch this for like if you're a fan of the Saw series, this is probably not the horror movie for you. Um, but if you're into just like interesting horror, it doesn't really matter if it's scary per se. I'm not, not saying it's not, but just saying, you know, you're not looking for realism, but you just want something interesting and creative. This is the one because there's straight up just like there's this, a point where uh, the killer, like Riley said, which is just like gloves and like a blade uh, cuts this woman open and you just literally just out of nowhere just see her heart pumping. You know, <laughs> like like yeah, you would right. get through the breastplate and everything so simply. But the point is, it's stylized. And then you just see the heart get stabbed over and over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like a very stylized thing. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't even like once again, the use of color in the film alone, like visually, it is kind of like I, I can't really compare it to anything else um it doesn't you know inferno doesn't look like this like it's you know they didn't they weren't using the that coloring process obviously sure. like I said it wasn't even possible at that point um but yeah it, that definitely gives it a very interesting look uh but yeah it's just a very stylized horror movie it's very creepy its soundtrack is very very creative and interesting and it's so good it's worth listening to on its own for sure yeah. um and it's just a it's a very just odd like dreamlike kind of moody atmospheric horror movie it's very very visually striking very creative um and argento didn't really make anything else like this outside of like i said maybe inferno the closest like even his other stuff isn't really it's kind of like one of a kind even in his filmography and he still does Um, other stuff that's like super creative it's just not creative in the same way you know what i mean right he he wasn't really he didn't really stick with a lot of this kind of supernatural giallo stuff. I mean, he's done other supernatural films, but this was like a thing he just did for this trilogy, really like this kind of setup at least. So, yeah. 
Well, I'm going to move on real quick. We have time for two more. Sure. And, uh, and by two more, I mean this next one I doubt we'll spend quite as much time on. Um, but I, I, I want to talk about the last one a lot. That's the one I'm most excited about. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So um, uh, you and I are both big fans of David Cronenberg. Yeah. And out of all the movies that we could have, have picked, and by we I mean you, uh, you brought up <laughs> Videodrome. And for some reason, this was surprising to me. I love this movie. Don't get me wrong. I own it. Yeah. I need to rewatch it. It's been a very long time since I've seen it from beginning to end. Uh, but it's Videodrome from 1983, written and directed by David Cronenberg, cast James Woods and Debbie Harry Blondie herself. Um, released February 4th, 1983 for a budget of $5.9 million, with a box office of $2.1 million. Womp, womp. Uh, big, oh, wow. big yeah. failure. Uh, but don't let that make you think that the movie's not good because that's not true. If you want to check it out, you can see it on Amazon. You could rent it there or really wherever you rent stuff. I'm sure it's on YouTube and iTunes and things like that. But why do you love this movie so much? Because, uh, you know, of course, David Cronenberg is just the, the 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 father of body horror, just like the best. Yeah. And this movie is so creative and weird. And I love the setup yeah. about James Wood basically being the smut peddler. And uh, and he finds this new thing whenever these uh, these airwaves cross and he finds this really random thing called Videodrome. And uh, he starts basically seeing these snuff torture films uh that he thinks are just shows but then at a certain point he's like wait are these fucking real like i don't know what's going on and he just gets fucking obsessed with it and it just turns into this super wild story um what do you love about videodrome i mean would you agree this is probably cronenberg's weirdest film because i think that's probably where i would I think start, I think possibly. if he has a weirder movie, this is his best weirdest film. Do you get what I'm saying? Sure. Because Naked Lunch yeah. gets weird too, but I like this a billion times right. more personally. Yeah, it's still a bit more grounded, though, for sure. I would say. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like um, I don't know. I feel like it's taking like the body horror stuff and a lot of his uh, elements he uses, kind of like to, in to overdrive almost they're kind of like really given their own space to just you know be weird and crazy and just go all out it, it is just a very uh like i don't even know the, the movie is just very very weird um uh there's a lot of paranoia and like hallucinogenic stuff going on like what you know as far as like what is real what isn't and uh it's just um gosh i need to rewatch it but it's it's a it's not really as easy to sum up. I feel like, like something like the fly or like, uh, the brood or, um, scanners, you know, to where the, the, 100%. What, the setup is like a sentence you could put on a poster. It doesn't really work out that way. It's just it's like, so out there. Yeah. Um, for, you know, with, uh, with his son, Brandon Cronenberg, this is like the era of yeah. shit. When I think of Brandon, uh, with something okay. like Possessor. This is like the era of shit that I feel like if he's mm. influenced by his dad, you know, it's this okay. kind of earlier. I mean, by this point, he'd been making movies for like a decade or whatever. But um, but this is like right before he blows up with the fly. You know what I mean? And uh, the thing with Videodrome is, that, for example, there's a scene where, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Debbie Harry is on the television and she's like uh, kind of seducing him through the television because he put this videotape in 
uh, in the VCR. And uh, basically, uh, she starts talking to him, and she starts, like, it's like a close-up on lips, you know? And the lips, like, start making the TV, like, they, like, start coming out of the TV. And this is all, like, practical effects. It looks fucking awesome. The TV's just, like, pulsating, and it, I think it just has, like, veins and shit, if I remember correctly. Again, it's been a while since I've yes, seen this. Right. But it's, like, super weird. And then, like, out of nowhere, James Woods just has, like, a pocket in his skin. Like, he just reaches inside of his body, and you see him just, mm. like, st- and then he, like, pulls a gun out of his body. You're like, what in the yes. fuck is going on? This is fucking crazy. Um, and then there's, like, yeah, there's crazy. this crazy conspiracy, like, uh, weird shit going on with, like, videotapes. And when he watches them, mm-hmm. I don't know, dude. It's, like, weird. But it's, like, it's not hard to follow, per se. It's just no. weird. You know what I mean? It's, it's like hard, it, it's hard to describe because it's so visual and it's it's kind of working on just a lot of layers, you know, but are, you know, not like that hard to understand. It's just it's, you know, uh the whole body horror stuff is just very interesting, especially when it's taken to this far when you're merging it with technology and just kind of like you know, kind of blurring what is real or not. Yeah. Um I don't know, it's just it's like there's a lot of really interesting elements kind of intertwined in this film. Um, I think this uh, is a really well, great uh, precursor to a movie like the fly in terms of special effects too. I think he like, sure, yeah. I think he does special effects that are pretty grounded here. Granted, they're all almost like supernatural kind of like uh, not supernatural, yeah. but like, um, like hallucinatory yes. or whatever. Um, whereas the fly is more just kind of like gross, <laughs> but yeah. you do it's see like kind of a precursor to that here. Yeah. It's not so much your like monster movie transformation type of setup Yeah, as much as just a bunch of very odd, you know, uh, like drug, like imagery or whatever you want to call it, just very out there stuff. Um, yeah, but I guess, uh, what is it like his, his budget for this was a lot bigger. So that's a lot of it for sure. Of course, it bombed, but like yeah, which is hilarious because you know, it, it's, it's huge... five point nine million is is a is a big increase for him because he was making such yes, cheap movies. Right. So I feel like he probably got you know the chance to do something this crazy with the the increase in funds, but yeah, it's just in it. It's a cult movie, and you know, very uh, you know, it uh, a lot of people talk about it now, but yeah, at the time, it kind of was assumed probably pretty overlooked. It seems like, but. I feel like this I'd is a movie. Heard about it. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like this is a movie that people will see on either lists or they'll see on Cronenberg's yeah. uh, IMDb or something, and they'll be like, "Oh, cool! I recognize some of the people in that." And then they'll just yes. like leave it alone. And I hope that yeah. like people will actually give this a chance because this is, as you were hinting at, with like, would you say this is the weirdest movie that he made? Mm-hmm. Um, it is definitely. It feels very Cronenberg to me. While at the same time, yeah. it's him being like real a real weirdo. On many different levels, like not just with like the, right. the weird hallucinatory stuff, but even just with the content, you know, the smut peddler yes. finding this weird shit and uh, man, and just the, the whole this, thing's the tension weird. and paranoia. Yeah, yeah. Just the, the plot's very odd. Like you could, like I said, it makes sense. There is a actual plot to follow with the characters and what's going on with them. It's just, uh, it's also very odd and yeah, it's probably his most surreal movie for sure. I would say, yeah. um, but but yeah, it's just a uh, gosh, what an ending this one has too. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what to say about it really. I'm not gonna yeah. like talk about it because I feel like that's better. Yeah, I think we should leave it alone. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it gets pretty wild, 
And uh, I certainly think the whole thing builds up to a scene like that. And uh, so if you want to check that out, uh, listeners, please definitely, like I said, Amazon has it. But if you don't want to go to Amazon, uh, you can pretty much rent it anywhere where you get digital rentals anymore. Um, that works. Riley, I want to move on, though, to the one I want to talk about sure. most. And I don't know how much we'll talk about it, um, but yeah. I just want it to be talked about because this is a movie I've wanted sure. to talk about on the podcast uh, for uh, more than a year now. Uh, but I just never had a reason to talk about it. And this will be the last one that we cover here today. Uh, but it's uh, it's Chris Marker's La Jete from 1962. Yeah. It's written and directed by Chris Marker. It was released February 16th, 1962. It's streaming currently on Criterion Collection. But you can also just go to YouTube. It's a 28-minute short. And you can go to YouTube. Criterion did put it out on Blu-ray if you're interested in that. However... Uh, if you go to YouTube and you type in uh, La Jete, it will automatic like you'll see a bunch of suggestions. And if you go to La Jete 1962 Chris Marker English subtitles, uh, that is the whole movie. And there are tons of versions of it. You can just go find it. There are English dubs. It is not as good because the narrator in French is so good. Like I just love the the uh, the cadence and the way that there's that he speaks. It's so great, but you can watch the English one if you want. Uh, I just encourage the English subtitles. Uh, this movie, legit, if I had to make a list of movies that change the way I look at film, uh, this is one of them. What do you love about La Jete, yeah. man? Uh, I mean, well, I guess we'll just start with the, the setup or the format, I guess I should say. Um, this is all black and white still photography. Yep. Um, it's that's literally what it is. Um, and when he says that, so, listeners, if you haven't seen La Jete, I'm talking it is a narrator speaking over still pictures. And there is an illusion of movement because you see these different yeah. pictures in different ways and you can see them running and you can see someone being chased or you can see someone doing whatever. This is 28 minutes of you watching black and white still photographs edited in such a way to tell a story with a narrator. And the music is incredible as well, but continue though. I just wanted that to be clear. Um, well, so, you know, that sounds maybe not so interesting on the surface, but you know, the photography and like you said, the score is amazing. Like just in and of itself, even outside of the plot and the, you know, the story and all of the cool genre stuff. Um, just like, this is like a visual and audio like treat to just kind of, get you know surrounded in and just kind of immersed in it's uh i don't know it really sucked me in and just i got super into it even though you're just watching stills you're watching still photography and you're listening to a narrator it's like doesn't sound like that involved but it, it very much is which is kind of like the great thing about this film is how well it works even though if you read about it you're like well how is that gonna you know maybe it, it wouldn't convince you but um, yeah, the, the photography is amazing. The score is amazing. But, you know, what the film is doing is even more impressive as how, like, influential and kind of groundbreaking the, you know, a lot of the genre stuff is. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, William Gibson was, like, very influenced by this film solely, like, just in and of itself to, like, his whole career um, as a writer, which is kind of saying a lot. So that, that that's, like, one just kind of, like, Thing to throw out there um but it very much is like a precursor to you know something like terminator right where you have the whole time travel assassination type of or you know at least the plot to assassinate someone 
to go back to prevent something from taking place. Um, that is completely what this is about. There's also a love story. Um, it is a very beautiful film, but it's also a sci-fi film. Yep. So you have you have a you have a romance, you have like a a time travel element going on. Um, so it, it is like almost like an experimental art film, but is very beautiful and interesting in that sense. But it's also very interesting in the kind of genre sci-fi sense. And just the the score is so good that even just listening to that is kind of just uh, I don't know enough of an experience. There's there's so many like sparse elements used so well that it's kind of like mind blowing. Really, I guess that's why it's such a, um, a you know a great pick for a list like this. Is like it's it's like what do you compare it to? Like what, I've said that you know a lot about the films on this list. But this one, more than any of them, is kind of like really its own thing, just as far as like its format and what it's doing. Yeah, Yeah, dude, by far. Watching this movie for the first time, uh, Mm. I believe I watched it on YouTube. It was the only way I could find it. And I watched watched it there first. I've seen this multiple times now. Again, it's only 28 minutes. And uh, this was the closest experience when I saw this to the first time I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is a silent film. And uh, that movie is mostly just close-ups of people like crying and shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know right. what I mean. Like, yeah. like that's like all it is. But the soundtrack was incredible. Uh, like the score that they had and uh, the cinematography, the way that it's used in the Passion of Joan of Arc, and then just the general story. I mean, I was just really invested in that movie, and it's still one. Of, I mean, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's my favorite silent film still. This is one of yeah. those where I had a similar experience, not because they're even remotely similar, but just in the yeah. way where it was like it was equally as mind blowing in terms of the mm. like, dude, you just talked about time travel and romance and all of this shit. And it's like it's still pictures. How does that even make sense? How do they convey yeah, right. time travel and still pictures? And that's where like the music and that's where the the narration and everything comes from. Um, and, and when we say sci-fi, like people have like weird glasses on sometimes, like some weird, like traditional sci-fi shit, you know what I mean? Um, but it's like really grounded in this. And there's a point where the main character, they're trying to get him to go back in time. And he, he puts this like mask on and it just looks like something we'd make, like anybody could make, but like you totally buy it. You know what I mean? Like you watch it and it's just like this really, really great thing. And someone else who was influenced is Terry Gilliam. Because uh, Terry Gilliam made 12 Monkeys, and 12 Monkeys is actually a remake of La Jetée, just expanded upon because it is a full-length feature, and La Jetée is only 28 minutes. So if you like the plot of 12 Monkeys, the base plot of it is uh, based on La Jetée. Again, it is expanded and added to. Uh, But yeah, this this movie is crazy. Yeah. I love it. Was the director like? Wasn't he doing like a uh, like travel log kind of photography or something like uh, doing those kinds of like docs before this, more or less? I believe that's his like background. I think. Yeah, he did uh, Sans Solier, but I can't remember if that uh, came I think out before. That's or not. More a lot. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember, but it's just very interesting because I mean, like, he's not known for this kind of stuff, really, in particular, right? It's not like a. Yeah. This so, is like yes. A, so Sans Solier came out in 1983. So if you buy the Criterion version, you can get La Jetée, but it comes with a double feature. It's like La Jetée and Sans Solier. Yeah. 
and uh, those movies uh, are on the Blu-ray. Uh, I'm I'm trying to look into the '60s, uh, like prior to yeah, Lajeté. Like, I was trying to think of like what he did before that, but I, I don't remember. A lot of documentary stuff. You're right. Uh, I don't know any yeah. of these. I've not seen any of them. But uh, yeah. Yeah, kind of like with you're talking about Carnival of Souls. I feel like it was like a weird like one-off for him to where he was doing like more like I don't know, grounded kind of serious stuff. Like like the the guy that did um Carnival of Souls was doing like documentaries and he's like, Oh, we have this location, let's just make this quick horror movie on our like off time or whatever. How's that movie so yeah, good? Right. And I don't know how La Jete exactly happened, but it wasn't like, you know, what this guy was typically doing or, you know, was doing after that. So it's very much it's like this like weird little exception to like the norm, you know, yeah. in a similar way. I guess. So it made me think of that. I love I love La Jete so much. It really like if I had to do a top um, anything over top 20, if I had to do a top 50, a top 30 movies i'm pretty yeah. sure la Jete would easily fit into that list um i don't know if i would put it in like that close to a top 10 just because i love so many movies but uh yeah. in terms of influential like i made a film in grad school a short film that w- was exactly this movie black and white still mm-hmm. photography with narration mm-hmm. and music and um yeah. and uh like that was that's all i did um, I, I literally did La Jete, but I told a different story and I'm not saying I did it nearly as well as him cause I didn't, <laughs> right. um, but the, I mean like even me, it's like just thinking of how you can show an image and tell a story by giving it context through narration, I think is so interesting. Um, anything you want to leave us on with La Jete before we start to wrap up here? No, I think just recommended people watch it because it's a it's a quick watch and you know it'll definitely be interesting. So yeah. twenty eight minutes, y'all. Twenty eight minutes on YouTube. Just go find it. It's super easy. Uh, today we talked about Akira, Star Wars, Night of the Living Dead, the original, um, Ghost World, Donnie Darko, Suspiria, Videodrome, and La Jetée. Riley, we made it through eight movies, brother. I thought we'd yeah. I thought we'd make it through half that many. To be honest. Right. This was yeah. an absolute pleasure. Um, we should do this again, man. We should because uh, I know yeah. that you were you were pretty uh, you were itching to talk about some like heavier hitters because a lot of these were like I asked you to find early on when you first kind of got yeah. into movies. What were those pivotal movies? And that's what this is to be clear, because a lot sure. of your favorites now are in very different directions. I mean, we're, we haven't talked yeah. about a David Lynch movie yet, which I know you're a big fan right. of. We haven't talked mm-hmm. about any of like any foreign. I mean, we had uh, uh, Suspiria is technically foreign, but you know, um, yeah, but it doesn't true. really feel uh, foreign. And of course, Akira is uh, Japanese, but again, we watched the English dub, so everything. Uh, La Jete yeah. is the only foreign, like proper kind of foreign mm-hmm. film, but even that can just be listened to in English. Um, sure, so we didn't even yeah. get into any of that stuff. You know what I mean? So I know that we have plenty more to talk about and we will definitely do that next time because I think there will be a next time. Sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, definitely go check out these movies. If you haven't seen them, I totally recommend all of these. Uh, and La Jete, I'm telling you, it's 28 minutes and it's 28 minutes. You won't regret. If you see any of these and agree or disagree with us, please hit us up. Medium cool pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, Riley, Thank you so much, buddy. Mm, Thank you.
that's my dude right there riley martin uh just hanging out with him he'll come on again i'm sure and we'll talk about some movies that later in his life uh you know influenced him equally as much uh but they're just very very different movies like if you were to ask him what is in has influenced him recently and what has really moved him uh probably none of the same movies would apply not to say that he doesn't like any of them clearly we just talked about them and he clearly does have a soft spot in his heart for these um and he selected all of them but uh, yeah it was a real pleasure riley and i can have like four hour conversations like they're nothing. So I'm actually surprised that we finished up in about an hour 45 or so. That's crazy. I don't think people understand how crazy that is. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, I, I love having Riley on. Riley is an interesting character and he has uh, always liked the strangest movies. And he's always introduced me to the strangest movies. And, uh, you know, he used to show me all of these really weird uh, anime movies. Actually, whenever we were done recording, um, I ended up uh, sharing my screen with him. And we started watching, uh, like, anime trailers and videos of the goriest anime movies and stuff. And I, we were just sh I was just sharing my screen. And I was on YouTube. We were just cracking up at how ridiculous some of the stuff, like Angel Cop was one of them. Uh, or Wicked City, or or any of those uh, kind of wild anime movies, and that was a, a place where Riley and I really connected. He's the one that showed me movies like Vampire Hunter D and Akira, and all of these movies that were hugely pivotal in terms of how I even saw animation. So watching a lot of these movies, and then watching something like a Disney movie, that just wasn't cutting for me as a kid anymore, because I'm watching crazy shit like like weird vampires and stuff and their boobs are out and everything, like in Vampire Hunter D and all this, and then I go watch like Bambi. Like, how am I supposed to feel the same way? I don't know. Anyways, this dude was really pivotal in me being here today, doing this show, and I'm really happy he was on. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, I will be doing a solo episode next week covering a lot of 2022 movies, but until then, thank you so much. Love you guys. Good night, good luck, and take it easy.